Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the 7 a.m. Novelist, Passages of Summer Edition. I'm Michelle Hoover, your host. Now, we all know that the early pages of a novel are nearly impossible to get right, so this summer we're discussing the choices that went into a range of authors' first pages in terms of scene, structure, language, etc., and how those choices might help you with your own first pages as you struggle to get them done. Today, we're hearing from one of my favorite authors, Henriette Lazaridis, and she's going to share the first pages of her latest stunning novel, Terra Nova. Good morning, Henriette. Good morning, Michelle. It's great Thank to be doing this. Yes, I'd love having you back. Thank you so much for being on the show. Henriette Lazaridis' latest novel, Terra Nova, was called Ingenious and Provocative by the New York Times. She's also the author of the best-selling novel, The Clover House. Having taught English at Harvard, she now teaches at Grub Street in Boston and runs the Kruna Writing Workshop in Northern Greece. She also writes the Substack newsletter, The Entropy Hotel, and I recommend that you you check that out. It's about the athletic and creative challenges um, of writing. And you can find that at henriettelazaridis.substack.com. Okay, Henriette, we've just gotten her right fresh off the boat, I think. After an early <laughs> morning. So to speak, yes. <laughs> All right, here we go. Can you give us a quick summary of Terra Nova? So it's the story of two uh, Antarctic explorers in 1910. Uh, before They're racing to be first to the pole. They're racing a Norwegian, fictional Norwegian, to be first to the South Pole. And uh, so the story takes follows them there, but also there is a narrative thread of the woman that loves who loves them both who is in London and becomes involved in the suffrage movement. She's a photographer as well. So right. Great. Okay, let's listen. Okay, so Terra Nova, chapter one, 88 degrees, 30 minutes south. Soon they will have to send Tite and Lawrence back. There is no longer enough food for four of them. The men will protest, but it will be no secret that they will be crying behind their sun goggles, tears of relief freezing into grains of ice in the corners of their eyes. Watts catches himself. Their bodies are too desiccated for tears. There is no weeping in this place so stripped of human life. There is only cold, cold like a presence they breathe and like a force to hold them down, hold them in place, even as they inch over endless swales of white and gray, gray-white, blue-white. He wants to curse now, again, at this cruel palette. His lenses struggle to find nuance in this stark world, the camera eye narrowed to a pinprick and even that almost too much for his glass plates. There's only contrast here, white and black and darker black and brighter, impossibly brighter, white. Cruelty reigns here. Is it not cruel to be forced to crawl like creatures of some frozen anthill or voles beneath the crust of this giant's pasture, eyes screwed tight against this sun? Is it not cruel to continue forward when they have lost most sense of their progress, when to spin like the compass's foolish needle and face in any direction, any, he nearly sits up at the thought, and to set off would make no difference, except to Haywood. Haywood, who lies in his bag across the tent, who barely speaks all day, lest human interaction distract him from his goal. It is a violence that they are here at all. Four men and four others waiting at hut camp, and six more at the edge of a sea from which no ship will depart, no hailing voices ring for two more months. All of them carried away from gas fires, hearths, fenders, beds, by the desire of this man Haywood 
to plant the flag in the center of this vast expanse of nothing. Watts can feel the panic rising in him, his heart fluttering and a small guttural sound rustling in his throat. Anywhere else he would shout and thrash. He would seize Haywood by the collar and pin him until he gave a schoolyard surrender. He cannot do that now, not yet. They would know him to be mad then, another casualty of the white cold, and they would leave him behind to die. He fumbles in his clothing for his notebook, slipped inside the linen pouch he keeps around his neck. He pulls out the graphite stick, but drops it, then scrabbles at the edges of his bag, fingertips already beginning to harden from mere proximity to the ice beneath, and retrieves the stick. Haywood is not stirred. Watts rolls onto his stomach, the sour tang of the seal pelt thick in his lungs, and riffles the grubby pages. At the beginning of the little book is the list he began to keep when they made landfall. Curiosities cited. Penguin, seal, albatross, a band of vivid turquoise water at the base of a coastal berg. He was all eyes then, eager for the pole's new vastness. With time, he added to his list. Spit, piss, shit, cum, blood, things that froze, one by one, elements of his body that this place had overpowered. It is as good a chronicle of their time here as any other. But this is no language for the geographical society. If they live, they will have to find other words with which to tell their tale. Watts finds the first blank page. He does not know how long it has been since he has written. Haywood keeps the calendar for them now. For Watts, it has been one long day, time marked only by the brief graying of the sky. His mind is in a state of agitation that he knows cannot be calmed, only diverted. He writes to Viola. Once he begins, he cannot stop until the verbs go and he is left with the language of a list, naming her body as if to conjure it beneath him. Neck, breast, legs, cunt. He moves against the bag, but knows he mustn't come for it will mean peeling frozen wool from the only patch of skin that is still tender. He forces his mind to step back from her. Now she is across the room from him. Viola, brown eyes smiling, and a laugh suppressed beneath the upper lip that pouts forever out. Her dark hair pinned up in the matter of an angle, her shoulder turned to him so that her jaw can cast a shadow, so that the hollow at the base of her neck can darken within her collarbone's frame. In his mind, he squeezes the shutter bulb, Viola after the bath. Watts looks over at Haywood. How can he stand it? Has the man no passions? Before the pole, on alpine climbs and in the Dolomites, Haywood would laugh and jolly him up a rock face. Haywood would reach a gallant hand down to Viola, who would take it without need. He stood on summits and breathed deep the beauty of the view. He clapped arms around them both, Watts and Viola, and they three were the luckiest alive to be together. In all these months that they have journeyed, weeks they camped together in the low canvas tent, Watts has never caught Haywood so much as sighing. He moves forward each day, more like machine than man. Watts rolls onto his back and stares up at a sprinkling of pinholes through which the light pierces like sword points. Perhaps Haywood goes out into the sun and fucks the cold. That is his lover, Antarctica, Terra Australis. And the rest of them have become nothing more than pimps and panderers to the great man's amorous folly. Amazing. Good. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Let's talk about this. Now, before we started talking, Henriette pulled out her 
her notebook on which she wrote these first pages. Now, if you're if you're actually watching this, you can see you actually you actually have pretty good handwriting for 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 most writers. It's not bad. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Do you have a special pen that you always use? I I vary it, but I have I have a, I like fountain pens. Um, yeah. I'm a lefty, but I learned to write with fountain pens. But this this is an old Parker Sonata that was given to me as a gift, a gift by my children when they were like too little to know what they were doing. Their father orchestrated it for me. And then, so that's what I wrote Paternova with, was that. And nice. now I write with, I write with, with, well, this isn't the fountain pen, but I write with one of these guys. Mm, very pretty. <laughs> I um, so much. <laughs> we need our tools. So do you we always do. write your first drafts by hand? No, no, I, um, I, I had, I started again um, with doing it with Terra Nova because I had gone to a place where I was really nervous about beginning a new book. I had two ideas I was kind of pondering and I was worried about the market, which was a stupid thing to worry about. But this was kind of, I was like, oh, I don't know what to do. Should I do this one or that one? But what I really wanted to write was Terra Nova. And it got in my head and I was like, you need to change everything up. You need to start this book and you need to do it in a way that's completely different. So that you just sort of get out of your head and get over the hump of, I don't know if I can write it. I don't know what to do. So I, I had been writing on my laptop for, for the Clover House, for instance. So I said, you know what? I got to start longhand. Everything's going to be different. I'm going to write in the darkness of like pre-dawn. I'm going to write longhand and I'm not going to write in my office, which I am in now, but I'm going to write out on the dining room table. And so I started Terra Nova. And since then, I've never gone back. I love writing longhand. It's um, and I, I ran out of these these A4 pads of paper, which is like the same paper I used when I was in grad school in the UK. They don't make it as nice anymore. So now I use a moleskine like every other writer. <laughs> You take every other writer. I'm a cliche. <laughs> You're a cliche only in that. Only in that. Um, so, I mean, did you already have a version of Terra Nova or was it just getting started at all? You had this idea, and but you were blocked from it because you, because you were worried, oh, am I going to be able to sell this novel? It was kind of, I, I was surprised to discover when looking for something in my files a few, a couple of months ago, that I had written a completely different beginning for Terra Nova, like six months or more before I started this, mm. um, which I'm holding up like the papers. Yeah. Um, so, but I'd forgotten that. And I think I had started it and it was like, eh, I don't know what to do. So when I sat down on December 1st of, 20, of yeah, 2015, the first sentence I wrote was exactly, yeah. It's soon they actually will, soon they, yeah. Yeah, that soon they will have to say. Actually, the first thing I can see it under my handwriting, before he understood, he began a list. Well, that's not a very good first. I don't like that. Uh, right, so right. I cross that out, and then it goes, soon they will have to send Lawrence and Tight back. I changed it to Tight and, and Lawrence because that rhythm is better. Yeah, yeah. And um, I mean, where had you started it? the six months prior still in Antarctica but it was a different style if I remember from just sort of coming across this thing because when I when I started it this time I I made a decision 
kind of in the days leading up when I was like writing 27 pages of notes as we as we know because I numbered my pages um I made a decision about how I wanted to approach sort of a commitment to the writing of the first draft and I I wanted to go slowly and the long hit was part of that I was sort of like craft the sentences I didn't want to write a shitty first draft I actually for whatever reason wanted to just perfect the sentences as much as I could and then in typing them into the computer maybe two or three days later perfect them more um and so the style of that first document that I wrote was kind of I don't know I would say like normal (laughs) it was sort of standard there were dependent clauses there were like it just I was using all the articles. I wasn't using verbs in any weird way. But when I started again, I kind of decided that I was going to care about rhythm a whole lot more than I ever had. And so that determined a different approach to the beginning. I love that because even though I don't normally write by hand, I do tend to write slowly. Um, and, and, and you know this too. I mean, both of us teach a lot of novelists and the primary process that we're supposed to teach is just bang it out, just get to the end, just do it. Um, But I think there's also something very rich in finding the language and finding the voice and feeding off that tone and place and rhythm as you travel forward. I Um, think so. Yeah. yeah. And I, I think for me, it became part of the environment that I was writing in. And I knew as I was coming to the end of the men's section, I was like, oh, you're, you're going to want to do something different with Viola. Like it has to be kind of the same, but also not the same. But here, this is an environment where they're living in deprivation. So I, for the sake of rhythm, sometimes like I'll drop an article or, I mean, that's usually it. I drop, I, I drop an article because like, I don't care. Or I, I also do run on sentences. I don't believe that run on sentences are bad. Um, and and right. so that I, that might sound contradictory because I'm talking about not doing dependent clauses. And first of all, I do do dependent clauses, but there was kind of a different cadence to their prose, and it 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 felt part and parcel with the world that I had put them in, where they're just they're like little ants. They're just going 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 forward, little step by step further forward. And so my prose was kind of like wait 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 going forward like that too. <laughs> Perfect. Nice. And so this, that sentence, soon they will have to send Tite and Lawrence back. I mean, it is so perfect because it begins at a moment of desperation, that there'll be something that they have to do that they don't want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and we also have, we're put right in the middle of the story. We don't know who Tite and Lawrence are, um, but it's, we're entering a world as if we do know that the author's kind of trusting us, that the author's almost saying to us, um, you're here with me, you know this place, you know these people, come along with me. Um, I think that works so well. And the they is also not defined, even in the next sentence, there's no longer enough food for the four of them, the men will protest. And so we're not, we don't know who these people are, we, we're not defining our pronouns. And that is a great way to invite the reader in and mm. make the reader feel that they are entering a story that's already happening. Mm. Um, what I also love is that you use in, in the way to get us to know this place. So we do get the name of Watts in the fourth or fifth sentence. Um, uh, it's a very short sentence. Watts c- catches himself. 
but we primarily we don't actually know where we are and you could assume that the the cover would tell the reader oh this is where they are and this is why they are um, but you aren't telling us what year it is you aren't telling us the place you are only putting us in their bodies and in the cold yeah. it is so powerful um and it makes me i mean i didn't even even i guess i, I guess i knew the 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 jacket copy but i don't even know if i would need that because i am so quite clearly in an experience um and in a presence and in, in in watt's body and sharing that experience with him that i don't have other questions i just assume that what i need to know later will come along um, you, you, you see right like um i know because you're an athlete how did you do the research for this i you know as i was reading this i was just honestly i, I couldn't believe it. i was like how did henriette get into the experience of these men's bodies and the experience of this cold i know that you've done some extreme hiking and traveling but you haven't done this no i haven't done this i've never been like the coldest i've been is like minus 23. actually we had that weekend in february that was even colder that was like yeah, it was like minus 25. i went outside we just dressed for it but um how did i do it i i mean i've like it's funny because as we know because we this is morning i came back from my row in the boathouse i sat down to eat my breakfast so i haven't showered yet but i'm in dry clothes but i've been cold all morning and like right now i'm shivering so like it's stupid it's 70 degrees outside it's 65 in my house probably because it just stayed cold and i'm shivering which is dopey but i i've been cold a lot and i think i just sort of extrapolated i know what it feels like when your eyelids kind of click together when they get kind of cold um and i um i think yeah being an athlete sort of trying to inhabit trying just trying to put myself in their bodies and being able to extrapolate from what does it feel like when you're when you're you know it, it hurts to breathe or your nostrils kind of stick together or all that stuff and i, I so some of it wasn't i didn't how to say this once i began writing the book i stopped reading anything about antarctica i have i'm not i can't touch them they're not on this desk but i have scott's journals and i have the apsley cherry garrard chronicle of one of scott's um journeys called the worst journey in the world um and i've read them not in their entirety though i've picked around like my whole life i've sort of picked around but i put a sort of moratorium on that when i started writing the book so I'm sure, though, that like in the back of my head, like I knew what it was like ish um, and I added to it my own experience of like getting frostbite. I've had I've had I've had a blister on my ear. I've like had frostbitten feet so bad I couldn't even stand up in them because I couldn't feel the ground. I was like I've been stupid that way. Um, so I guess that's that's how that happened. Well, it's incredible. And then you also in this first paragraph use a kind of free and direct style where you go into these um, lines. Is it not cruel to be forced to crawl like creatures of some frozen anthill or voles beneath the crust of this giant's past your eyes screwed tight against this sun? I mean, we really feel that we're entering Watts 
there. Um, and free and direct style, for those of you, it's it's a um, narrative distance trick. It gets us inside the character's voice, um, even when you're using third person. And indirect style, um, usually you use the present tense, or no, in direct style, you use the present tense and you actually, the character will, will say like, oh, I hate, I hate, I hate cheeseburgers or I hate, I hate this. And it's interrupting a past tense third person um, narrative. You can use right. a free uh, indirect style by saying he hated burgers and, um, and borrowing, you borrow from the character's language instead of the narrator's language. Um, here then, it feels like we're going into Watts and we're going closer to Watts as we listen to this. Mm. Though, as I read it over, I'm not sure that that is Watts' language. Is is to you, is that Watts' language? No, I don't think so. I, I think, I mean, no, I don't I don't think that's Watts' language. I think like there's that break when it's, you know, to face in any direction, any. It's a, I don't know what's happening there. It's like yeah. the any is kind of him. It's almost as though he's listening to the narration and he hears that word and he's like, any yeah. and he sits up practically um i yeah i'm not, I'm not sure I, I have to confess that i don't really know i would like to be able to tell you that i had such control over that that there was a, a real plan there but um i don't know that watts would say that but you are the the narrator with that any the narrator does absolutely disappear and we are, and the character comes forward completely. And I think it might just follow because you're following his um, physical experience so closely. Um, so it just kind of happened in the paragraph. Anyway, it's a nice mm -hmm. trick for mm -hmm. everyone mm -hmm. to, um, to use if they want to. And you can look up free and direct style and free direct style. There's other names for it because, of course, writers can never decide on a proper name for anything and stick to it. Um, and then at the end of the paragraph, only by the end of the paragraph, do we get hut camp. We get, they're going to be there for two more months. Um, and we get Haywood that he wants to plant the flag. We get his goal. And right there, we get this conflict between these two men, um, <laughs> that you set up within the first paragraph, the difference between these two men, mm -hmm. um, that conflict is just going to grow. Now, did you know what the conflict would be when you were writing those first pages by hand, or did you just follow what was happening on the page? A little bit of both. I knew that, that, um, that something problematic was going to happen at the poll. And I knew that these men were going to end up on different sides of it. Um, so I knew that their sort of their their moral reaction to events was going to be different. Um, and I also knew that I I mean, then this is an, I'm not really a spoiler because it's revealed very, very soon. I knew that they were they have a conflict over the fact that they both are in love with Viola. Um, and so that's obviously going to set. I wanted that to be revealed to Haywood out there on the ice. So, and that's yeah. when the reader finds out. So I knew that their attitudes sort of as people were going to be different and therefore their attitudes to the pole. I mean, you know, Watts yeah. is the photographer. He's there to capture photographs and he's more, he's, he's a climber, he's an outdoorsman, but for him, it's much more about the art that he's going to produce. And for Haywood, it's about this sort of the, the triumphant, claiming of the pole for England. And I should say, he's a, fi these are fictional characters. They're, they, yeah. 
They're not based on anybody real. Um, I did look them up to make sure that they're fictional because they oh, yeah. felt <laughs> Yeah, and the Norwegian is also fictional. Yeah. Right. Yeah, the, the poor Norwegian. We're not going to talk about what happened to the Norwegian yet. But um, yes, yeah, so you have, you really are planting so much in these first pages. And we talk about writers should attempt to plant the seeds for the full novel in the first five pages. And I think you absolutely are doing that. I think the way to do it is it sounds like you had the story in mind, but you also followed along what that slower process was giving you um, as you kept writing forward. So you have him with the camera. You introduced that very early on. Yeah. And so his double obsessions of photography and then you introduce Viola now. But you don't. You, so we do see that she, he's obviously lusting for her. Mm -hmm. um, and before we even started, Henriette was like, oh, shit, I have to say these two C words out loud. <laughs> <laughs> so bravo for that. Um, and, you know, um, I have to say that when I was writing the draft, I thought to myself, I'm going to put the C word in on the first page because it's my signal that this is not a decorous historical novel that I'm doing. I want to do something different. The prose isn't going to be pretty. So that was like my like, I'm planting the flag there. I'm like, no, I'm saying the C word. Excellent. Excellent. And so you introduce Viola, but yeah, we don't. How how soon do we know? I, I kind of forget because um, I read this when it first came out. How soon do we know that Watts and um, Haywood are both in love with her? And can I say it, that she's actually married to one of them? Married to Haywood, yeah. We, yeah. we learn it pretty soon because I think in the second chapter that they have, there's a reference to, well, actually, it's in it's in Viola's chapter, which is the second chapter right. of the novel, that you learn that she's married to Haywood. Mm -hmm. So you mm -hmm. learn it in her chapter and then, and then, um, yeah, so it was very, very soon, like on page 15 or something. That's interesting. I mean, did you, did you delay that for reason? I mean, it might've been an issue of point of view because I have a feeling that it's not something that Watts wants to think about. <laughs> it's well, not something that he's going to stew on or even repeat or tell us. Right. He wants to think about her, but he doesn't want to think about the fact that he's cheating on, on, um, on her, on Haywood with her. Um, yeah. So I think when I wrote the novel, I wrote all the men's part first. And so in my experience of writing it, the revelation came like 30 pages in, I want to say something like that, because you have a couple chapters from the men before you realize you and 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 then it's a little further when Haywood realizes. So for the reader, I think it's like a four yeah. part. There's you hear it from Watts, then you get the news from Viola's section, then you hear it again in Watts's section, I think. Um, and then you realize that that then Haywood realizes. And now it's yeah. this problem of like if we were anywhere else, I would kill you, but I need you, so I have to keep you alive. I mean, it's just, it, it's a perfect, horrible conflict. And so she uses, Henriette uses the secret. And that's what I was reading. I was reading the beautiful prose. There was so much that I was reading for, but I was reading, I have to say, primarily for what's going to happen when mm. Haywood figures this out. Mm. What, is he going to kill him? Is he going to do something? I mean, it was just, and sometimes we just read for those basic questions. Um, that the text introduces to us. I would have kept reading otherwise, but that was a huge reason why I was turning the pages. Yeah, um, 
And, and we do feel very early on that there's something wrong with Watts's lust for viola. And it, and it does have something to do with Haywood. There's something uncomfortable there. So even if we don't find it out until Viola's chapter that she's actually married to Haywood, um, we feel that promise of trouble, which is absolutely what you need. Yeah. Oh, good. I hope so. Um, did you always intend this to be in the two points of views? Well, then you also go into um, Haywood's point of view later, correct? Uh, he doesn't get he doesn't get a point of view. He okay. like um, you know he, he's never we're never on his shoulder. Yeah, yeah, we see him from outside, but we really we see him in. Well, so to answer the question, yes, I did intend for it to be um, a two part or two, two narrative parts. I wasn't sure how I was going to handle the men's narrative when they came back. I thought, would I carry on and narrate them from, from this point of view that the novel opens with? And I decided that once they returned, they would become part of Viola's narration. So we, we don't have access to them. Once they return, we only see them when Viola is, is through her narration. Right. Um, which I also right. kind of wanted. I wanted because I wanted, I think when I began writing, it was really about the two men. I knew that there would be the Viola character, but as I went, I thought, no, she's really the main character. So when the men return, and there's a spoiler for you, when they return, they will join, they will become part of her narrative rather than have this sort of equal weight and for logistic reasons too in terms of unfolding other secrets in the novel i needed i needed the rest of the novel to be told from viola's third person perspective right because the right. suspense of certain other things needed to be sort of from from her yeah um, and I think a lot of writers might think, well, I need to be, I have to make it more even. I have to go into the men's point of view later in the novel. I have to, I can't focus the beginning of the novel on the men and then shift it. Um, um, and, and there might even be agents, editors who say, you can't do this. It's just, it doesn't, it's not even, but it, it works for what you're trying to say with the book. I, I think, um, yes, thank you. I'm glad that you think so. Yeah. And I sort of, to me, it's like the men's narration is marked like, as I was doing a book club last night and, and people asked this question of like, why do I do, I do um, latitude, latitude, longitude marks for the men's and dates for Viola's. And mm -hmm. I kind of wanted that sense of time and space are converging. But once they converge in London, we kind of, we don't need the men's narration anymore. It's all happening within Viola's like time and space have connected they're there and the men are connected they, they are also there so we off we go with Viola um, great great so you're just following what you're trying to say with the book and matching the form um to that I think it's perfect yeah. okay, I'm gonna have to let you go Henry we're gonna have to finish I need to get everyone to their writing desk to work on their own right. pages so everyone you can find our full schedule on the Substack page um 7amnovelist.substack.com you can subscribe there for updates you can also find our full range of podcast episodes on that page including episodes from our past two writing challenges we did two crazy writing challenges in the fall and in the spring and there's a lot of media material there and you can also find any of those episodes on your 
your favorite podcast platforms. And if you like what we're doing, please follow, rate, and review our podcast so that we can reach other listeners. Okay, Henriette, one last question. What advice would you give to authors about their own first pages? People always get so nervous about them. And I would say you have to tell yourself that these are like one of several. And sometimes one way to snap out of the sort of hesitation is to say, I'm going to sit down today and I'm going to do three versions of my first page. And I'm going to do 10 minutes for each one. And if you know that you're doing three, none of them becomes precious. So you can sort of experiment and make them three consciously different ways. And that gets you, that just gets you in. Yeah, yeah. So allow yourself to play, allow yourself to experiment. Perfect. Okay, okay. I'm gonna let everyone go. Have a great writing day. And Henriette, thank you again so much for joining us. Thank you, Michelle. You're able to get back to your table with your pens um, and working on your next book. Thank you very much. Thank you, Michelle. This is so awesome. Happy writing, everybody.